Well, it is uh, opening day, right? I just wanted to uh, give you all one promise today. I promise I will have you out in time for kickoff. So no worries there. I'll have you out in time for kickoff. Um, Brad did say he's keeping tabs. If you're not wearing red today, he wants to talk to you after service. So um, be, uh, be out there ready for that. Um, well, i tell you what, uh, yesterday was kind of fun. I, I you know, watched, of course, the OU game and a few others, uh, but uh, how about those uh, Wildcats yesterday? Yeah? I have this irrational dislike for Missouri. I have no reason to dislike them, so anytime they lose is good, and see, that was, was very fun. And I had to actually, I was, I was told this multiple times at the 8 o'clock service. I had to check it for myself. Kansas is in first place. In football? Man, that's, yeah. Kansas is, I mean, this will tell you something about Kansas football. Chris Harry's wearing a Kansas shirt today instead of a Chiefs shirt. He hasn't gotten into pregame mode. He's still in celebration mode. So uh, he does have his Chiefs shoes on. Yes, that's true. So, hey, we're glad you're here. If you're joining us in person, if you're joining us online, we're glad that you're here. Uh, We're starting a new series today called Ripple Effect. And I'll get into what that is all about here in just a moment. But if you've got a Bible, uh, want to follow along, jump into the Gospel of John with us. If you don't, we've got it on the screens. Got a device, you can go there. But John uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it starts off like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, This is such a cool little verse to me. It's one of the the verses I just always have in my head. I always uh, love to to reflect on this verse. And just a real quick hit on this verse where you see word and it's capitalized. I always say when you see the word word, that kind of sounds funny. But when you see word and it's capitalized, that's the Greek word logos. And the Greek word logos just kind of simply translated. It doesn't have a simple translation, but the easiest translation is this is like the living, breathing essence of God that eventually we're going to see is Jesus. In the beginning was this essence of Jesus, and he was with God, and he was God. And John goes on to say in verse 3 that everything that was created was created through him. And in verse 4, it says that he's the giver of life. And in verse 5, it says he's the light of the world that is so strong and so powerful, the darkness cannot overcome it. From the very beginning of his gospel, John is trying to make a point that Jesus is God and that we should believe in him. In fact, when you read the gospel of John, especially if you can look into the original language and you look into the Greek, you're going to find a very interesting pattern. You're going to see the word pistewo 98 times. The Greek word pistewo. That translates, it's a verb, it translates as to believe. Now, What's cool about this is if you take a class on biblical interpretation, whether it's a, just a hermeneutics class, a principles of interpretation class, whatever it may be, one of the first rules they will tell you when it comes to trying to interpret what Scripture means is you look for repetition. If you see something over and over by the author, the similar word or similar theme, that's a point that author is trying to get across to you. And 98 times... In his 21 chapters, John uses a variation of the word pistiwo. And what's fascinating is it's the verb form of the noun pistis, which translates as faith. John doesn't talk about faith. 
He doesn't even talk about belief. He talks about the active motion of believing. In other words, encouraging you to believe in Jesus. And there's a reason for that. He says in verse 12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. If you believe in him, John says, you're given a new identity. It's one in God bearing the name of Jesus. I love the gospel of John, and we're going to camp out here for the next several weeks. But what I love about John is it's so different than the other gospels. I don't know if you follow us on Facebook, but we've been doing this devotional series on Facebook where each of us on staff take a turn each week. And we're talking about one of our favorite books of the New Testament. I chose the gospel of John. And that's, that's why, because he talks so much about belief. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are biographies of Jesus. And they're written to very specific audiences. John doesn't do that. Matthew and Mark were written just a few decades after Jesus uh, was crucified and resurrected, went back to heaven. Luke was written some time after. John was written 60 years after the time of Jesus. When he's at the end of his life, he's uh, probably in isolation at this point. Uh, John writes this letter, and he's looking back and he's reflecting. and, And the Spirit's obviously guiding him, but he's reflecting on all those times he had with Jesus. And rather than write that biography, what he does is he sits down and he paints a portrait of who Jesus was. And to do that, he centers it around seven moments, specifically around seven moments and around seven sayings of Jesus. And and, and he lays that out in such a unique way. It's so different because, again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell you so many details and so many sayings and so many miracles that Jesus performed. You can find page after page of great sayings and great moments in Jesus' life, John doesn't do that. And if we just read through them, that might not stick out to us. That might not jump out to us, but we always have to put ourselves in the shoes of the original readers. And when you put yourselves in the shoes of people in the late first century, in the 90s AD, you have to think about what's taken place. Jerusalem is no more. It's been uh, taken over by the Romans. There's a godless society, and and any type of faith is being punished. Uh, And and you think about this, too. It's 60 years. The people who saw Jesus are long gone, and probably their children are now gone. We're potentially three generations later, three generations removed from a strong, structured system of faith and belief. John is trying to point them back in the direction in which they're supposed to believe. And he does that by highlighting seven signs of what Jesus did. Now, we might call them seven miracles. And and maybe you do. They are miracles after all. That's what we see throughout all of of the Gospels is Jesus performing miracles, him walking on water, him raising people from the dead, him feeding the multitudes. But it's interesting that John doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. There's a reason behind that. It's very specific. A miracle is a powerful moment. It's it's, it's a powerful event of something that that took place. A sign, on the other hand, is a revelation from God. A sign is God telling you something, showing you something that only he can. One of my mentors used to talk about miracles and signs together. He said, a miracle is something that makes you say, wow. But a sign is something that makes you say, oh. It gets your attention. You start seeing more than just what happened. You see who made it happen. Miracles are incredible moments. Signs were marks of validation in the life of Jesus. 
When he performed these signs, they had a lasting effect. And what I love is that rather than fill his book full of signs and miracles, John picks seven. Again, John, John's fascinated with the number seven. We see it often in his writings. But the gospel of John specifically is on those seven signs and those seven I am statements of Jesus. And seven's interesting because seven is looked at as the number of perfection. And it's not like some big, deep mystery as to why. Seven is simple math. See, in the the Jewish culture, the Hebrew culture, numbers represented things. It wasn't just a means of counting. They represented things. The number of God is three. Okay, the number three for the Trinity. The number for people is four. Three plus four is seven. What does seven represent? It represents God coming to his people. And that's what John wants you to understand through his gospel. That's why in that great introductory monologue that he writes, talking about Jesus being the word and and being with God and being God, and that if we believe in him, we're called children of God, he says in John 1.14, the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. He came and he pitched his tent among us. That's what separates our Christian faith from all other religions out there. Every other religion, it's about what we can do to get ourselves to God. The Gospels make it clear that God came to us. And he became one of us. The the literal translation of made his dwelling among us, he came and he tabernacled with us. He pitched his tent in the middle of our camp. He came to be with us. This series, we're calling it Ripple Effect. And, And the reason is pretty simple. Probably every single one of us at some point has walked up to a body of water, picked up a rock, and thrown it in. And what happens when you do that? It hits, it makes little ripples, makes waves. And most of us, we pick up a rock that's probably no bigger than a baseball. You chuck it out there a little ways, it makes a nice little splash, and the ripples go for maybe 5, 10, 15 feet, and they dissipate. You know how this works. It's basic physics, right? The larger the impact, the bigger the waves, the bigger the ripples, the more they go. You get an earthquake in the middle of the ocean. You get a tsunami and a tidal wave that hits land. It creates a massive impact that leaves a lasting view on anything that it touches. Jesus made a massive impact. And those signs and those miracles that he performed back in the first century, we are still getting ripples off of those today. They're still impacting us today. And that's what this series is all about, is to look at those moments And not just see how he impacted the people that were there. Today we're talking about a wedding in Cana. We're not just talking about the people at that wedding. We're not just talking about the nobleman next week or the disciples in the boat. No, we're talking about how we, still to this day, are getting the effects of those signs and those miracles that Jesus performed. We're going to look at the first one today. It takes place in John 2, if you've got a Bible and want to follow along. Again, we've got scripture on the screens for you if you don't. But just to kind of set this up, the first two verses of this passage give us the context. They're at a wedding in Cana. Cana is a small town next to Nazareth where Jesus was uh, up in Galilee. And to understand the context here, you have to kind of stop thinking through our American eyes for just a moment. We go to a wedding that's what? Hour, two-hour celebration. You know, we go set through a ceremony. We go to a reception for a little while, and we go home. And we, we wish the, the couple well. We love on the couple. But that's the end of the ceremony, right? That's the end of the celebration. In first century Palestine, a wedding was a week-long thing. 
And it ultimately culminated where the bridegroom would follow a processional, basically a parade just for him. And he would walk all the way to the home of his bride. There he would take his bride and he would take her back to his home. And the procession would go back to his home and then they would have the celebration. And it was a feast. It was a massive, massive banquet. Uh, the likes of which we probably might attend once a year for some sort of ceremonial celebration, a massive type of thing. This was a big deal, much bigger than what we celebrate just here in our, our culture today. And, and it wasn't just a matter of, of the meal. It was a matter of honor. It tells us that Mary was there in verse 1. Interesting that it lists her first. It says the mother of Jesus was there. And then in verse 2, it says Jesus and his disciples were also there. At this point, Jesus probably only has five or six disciples. He doesn't have all 12 of them yet, but they are all there too. What's that tell us? Again, we kind of have to use a little bit of conjecture here. Jesus and Mary probably knew this family. They were probably involved with this family somehow, just acquaintances. Jesus, in all likelihood, keep this in the back of your mind, is just probably sitting in the back of the crowd like you would if you were attending a wedding. That you're not necessarily family. Uh, you're not necessarily a part of the ceremony. You're just going to sit back in the crowd. That's pretty much where Jesus was. File that away because we'll come back to that. But here's where the conflict comes up, the, the, the issue and the, the uh, day of the celebration. Verse 3, it says, When the wine had run out, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Now we read this. And some of you are like, oh, oh, that's a little bit of a party foul. <laughs> Run out of the good stuff, right? And you might think about this, because if I invited you over to a barbecue, and, you know, there's 20 people that show up and 10 people in, I run out of ribs. Well, guess what? I didn't plan very well, did I? And I can't just, like, whip another batch up. They take time or... You know, heaven forbid we run out of burn-ins, because those take, like, a day to make. So we're just stuck, you know? This is, this is what we might think with this. No, no, this is a major, major issue here. This isn't just we simply ran out of wine. No, the, the wedding feasts, the banquets, they were hosted by someone in honor of the family. Uh, they, they would call that person the master of the feast or the master of the banquet. It was a massive thing of honor to prepare for this family. And by running out of wine, this person has failed to properly Give this family the banquet they deserve. This is a major issue. And so that dishonor, because it's gone on to the, uh, to the, to the, the master, it will ultimately spill over and dishonor the family of the bridegroom. And will dishonor him as well, too. This was a, an honor-based culture. And if you lost your honor, you couldn't get it back, or at least not easily get it back. And this wasn't as simple as, oh, hey, we ran out of booze. Can you run out of the store and get us some more? It didn't work that way. They couldn't just give somebody a 20 and go pick up some more to drink. It, there were issues here. This was planned out to the last little minute detail. And suddenly the plans have failed. This is a major cause of embarrassment. This is a major cause of shame for, for these people here. And that's where Mary comes into the story. It says she came to Jesus and told him they have no more wine. And I love verse 4. I'll just paraphrase it. Jesus is like, yeah, that's not my problem. <laughs> that's basically the paraphrase. He's like, well, he said, why are you concerning me with this? That's not my problem. I'm just a guest. I just showed up. There wasn't like, you know, a, hey, bring this with you kind of thought here. 
but it goes back and forth. And he tells her, my, my hour, my time hasn't come yet. And Mary tells the people there, hey, whatever Jesus tells you, just do it. Now, it's interesting here how this works. Because I don't know if Mary is fully, I don't know what Mary's asking Jesus to do. She's telling him they don't have any more wine. I don't know if Mary, in her mind, thinking, hey, won't you go perform a miracle? Because as far as we know, he had never done one yet. He hadn't done any of these yet. Yes, go back a few decades. She knew that he was the son of God. He was going to be the son of God. That's what the angel told her when the angel visited her back in the very beginning of Matthew and Luke. But 30 years later, in the heat of the moment, I don't know if that's crossing her mind here. I don't know what she's asking him. But what it tells us is something interesting. Again, put on our, our first century sandals here and think about this. Joseph, in all likelihood, is dead. Mary's a widow. Jesus, as the oldest son, it's his obligation to support his mother. And Mary, I'm not, again, I'm not sure how Mary has to be the one to fix the problem of the master of the feast. Maybe she knows the master of the feast. Maybe Mary's trying to get in a little better societal place. After all, she's a widow. It's Jesus' responsibility as her son to help her out. And that's kind of where the story is building up to. Hey, we're out, we ran out of wine. And Jesus is like, what do you want me to do about it? And she's like, you figure it out. You're, you're, you're smart. You figured this out. That's the context of where we step into the next verse. Let's look at verse 6. It says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Think about this. A 55-gallon drum is probably this tall, right? It's about half that size. And there's six of them. They would come in. They had to, to, to scoop some water out to clean their hands as they came in before they could eat. That was part of the Jewish ritual law. Those are going to play a key moment in the story here. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Another important little detail. They left no extra space in there whatsoever. And forgive my, forgive my double sentence here. He only says this once. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And so they did. Verse, uh, verse 9, it says, They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Everyone, or then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, <clears throat> and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. That's the story. And it's a quick, simple story of this miracle of this sign. And you might read this and go, oh, that's great. Jesus just made their party better. It's not like he fed anybody. He didn't raise anybody from the dead. He didn't heal the sick. He just made the party a little bit better. He made the celebration last a little bit longer. If that's what you catch out of this, you're missing the point of the story. The Gospel of John, what I love about it, this is typical John is at the exact same time when you read him, both simple and he's complex. He is shallow and he is deep. The Gospel of John has been described as a pool where a toddler can wave and a diver can, a toddler can, can walk and wade and a, a diver can never find the bottom. At, at the same time, it's so easy to read and understand, but there are so many layers to it. Don't miss this because what he's saying here in this portrait of Jesus that he has painted is there is so much more to him. And the best part of this is in a lot of ways, we are just like that wedding crowd. 
We're waiting for Jesus to do something for us, but we don't even know what we're waiting for. And what Jesus did, what Jesus showed them was a new look at who he truly is. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here experiencing Jesus for the very first time. Maybe you're online experiencing Jesus for the very first time. Or maybe you've been apart for a while, but you really haven't experienced him in a while. Maybe you've been coming to church, you, you come on Sundays, you, you're here, but, but you just need something kind of fresh to click. You know, you've been coming to the same old, same old wedding every week, waiting for something new to happen. Maybe, maybe you're, you're not even sure about Jesus and you're just asking the question, why should I follow him? Why should I care? What difference is he going to make in my life? Let me just tell you, this story is about far more than a wedding. And it's about far more than water simply turning into wine. There is so much more here. The simple truth is Jesus showed up and everything changed. Jesus showed up and everything changed. And as you break this story down, we've just read through it, but as we break it down, what we do is we come to two realizations, two observations out of this story that show us what this sign still means to us today. And that's what I want to focus on in the next little bit, just those two observations because it helps us understand more about who he is and what he did. Here's the first observation. Jesus is better than anything you've ever experienced. He's better than anything that you have ever experienced. Again, go back to the last line. The, the, the master of the feast pulls the bridegroom aside, pulls him, which is kind of interesting to think about because they're the focal point, pulls him off to the side, and in verse 10 it says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. You have saved the best until now. My, my papa used to always tell me stories. Him and my uncle would go fishing. Um, they weren't necessarily living the most wholesome of lives at the time, but uh, he would always tell me, we would you know, stop him, buy a few 12-packs before we hit the, hit the boat. And he'd always tell me, you buy a 12-pack of the good stuff, and then the rest can be cheap, because after the first 12-pack, you can't taste the rest of it anyway. That was his philosophy. Okay, I've not tested that personally, so. But that's exactly what the master's saying here. You bring out the good wine. People have had a little bit. They're feeling it, they're desensitized, then you can get away with all the cheap stuff. But yet, the wine you just brought out is top shelf. Like, I thought we had good stuff. No, this is, this is the best of the best. In other words, what the master is, is understanding here is maybe things have been pretty good up to this point, but when Jesus gets involved, it's going to get a lot better. Maybe that's been your life. Things are pretty good. Uh, things are going well. Maybe your job's going well. Your relationships are going well. Uh, you're enjoying life. Things are good. You, you get this. But if you've been alive longer than a few days, you understand something very simple. Good times come and go. Life's a roller coaster. We have ups. We have downs. And, and basically what it boils down to is this. The world cannot fulfill you or sustain you. We get this. Even each other. No matter how much we might love one another, we can't ultimately fulfill and sustain one another. We just aren't capable of doing that. The world can do many, many good things for you. It can give you incredible happiness and incredible joy. It can make you feel ecstatic at times. It can fulfill you four times. But you know it doesn't last. It doesn't last forever. And we know this because we have low moments. We have difficult spots. We have loneliness. We have brokenness. We have damaged relationships. 
We struggle with health. We struggle with our internal self at times, with our mental health and with our spiritual well-being at times. Our finances and our relationships can all bring us down at times. All of these things. And what happens when we do? We try to fill those gaps with whatever the world can give us. And the world is really good. Culture is really good at telling us what we need to help us fill those gaps in our lives. And we know that happiness might come from them, but it is temporary. Jesus showed up to this wedding knowing that he was going to change things. Well, we go to a celebration. We go to some sort of a, of a get-together. And it's fun while we're there, and, and then we get on with our, our lives. Jesus knew that he was going to do much more than just show up. He was changing the very foundation of what these people thought. Again, go back into the story and look what he did. Verse 6, there's those ceremonial washing jars. They would come up and they would scoop water on their hands and clean them. And Jesus is saying, I'm not here for some religious observation. I'm not here to follow that right now. I'm not here to do this. I'm here to show you something new. In other words, Jesus doesn't fit into your box. We're very good, especially as the American church. We are very good at building a box and trying to put Jesus into that box. And what happens when he doesn't fit? We get frustrated with him. We get frustrated with the church. And let me just tell you, because I've been there. I'm not pointing the finger because I have been there. The times I'm the most frustrated with God or the most frustrated with the church, it's because he's not fitting into my box that I built. Because he's not going to. He doesn't fit that. It's not his job to fit into my preconceived notions of him. No, it is my job to look for him and to follow him. He's better than anything I have experienced. And the more I try to fit him into what I want him to become, the more damaging it's actually going to be for me. I have to allow myself to be flexible for him. That's why Jesus, using another illustration with wine, in Mark chapter 2 said, nobody puts new wine into old wineskins. For the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. This is a very, very practical illustration. The, the people there would have completely knew what he was talking about. When you made wine, you took an animal skin, that soft leather, and you filled it with the wine mix, and wine has to ferment, and as it does, it expands, and the gases inside there would expand. And so that needs to stretch with it. And then what happens once that leather dries? It becomes hard and brittle. So if you try to do that again, it's going to burst it open. That's what Jesus is saying there, that we need to be like, not like something forced into a, a hard case. We need to be more like a caterpillar that goes into a cocoon. And then when he comes into our lives, that cocoon bursts open and we emerge as the butterfly. We let him change us. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Jesus, again, didn't just show up to be there. He showed up to change everything. And he does the exact same thing with you. Jesus doesn't just save your life, he transforms your life. He changes every part at your very foundation, at your very core. He transforms you into a new creation with a new identity. And he does it because that was part of his mission. We read three times in the Gospels where he says what he came for. One of those, he came to bring life 
and to bring it to the full. And that life, if we believe in him, it says we get to be called children of God. That's our first observation. He's better than anything that we have ever experienced. Here's our second observation, kind of along those same lines. He's more than you will ever need. He's more than you'll ever need. Again, go back to verse 6. Pay attention to the details, because verse 6 is one that's very easy to just gloss right past. Because verse 6, if you recall, there were the six stone water jars that held 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, we read this. And we understand something, that, that when the Jewish people had this custom, they needed to have enough water for the people who were coming. Usually you would have one or two of those jars. They had six. That means they're expecting a large crowd, a large crowd at this wedding. Those hold 20 to 30 gallons each. Do the math. Jesus just made between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. Now, I checked the average size of a bottle of wine, I think is like 750 milliliters, you know, give or take. I don't know how that translates to gallons, but that's less than a quarter of a gallon, basically. Jesus just created 180 gallons. I don't know how big this crowd is, but I can tell you that's far more than what they're going to need at this celebration, far more than what they're going to need there at that, at that wedding feast. And what's interesting about this is that's not even the point. The wine itself isn't even the point. It's what it represented that's the point. See, Mary expected Jesus to take care of the situation. And I, again, I don't know what she wanted him to do, to try to go find more, to try and distract people. I, I don't know. But what he did was more than what she wanted or expected from him to do. Go back to what Jesus replied to Mary with when he, he said, basically, this wasn't my problem. And then he says something in verse 4 that's very interesting that almost doesn't make sense in this, this passage because he says, my time has not yet come. Well, like, okay, well, okay, in an hour will it be here, Jesus? Like, the party's still going on. We need something to happen quickly. That line, if you just read the story, doesn't necessarily make sense. But when you see the bigger picture, it starts to. Because many times through the Gospels, Jesus talks about time or, or he talks about the hour. He's always referring to marks in his life that God put there. That God can determine, not even he himself is in, in, in charge of. He talks about this many times, these markers or these signposts that he is supposed to follow. And too often, that's exactly where we get ourselves in frustration with God is that we try to make God's markers and God's signposts where we want them to be, not where he has them in store for us. We spent the last five weeks talking about this series on following God's will. That's what it was all about, was learning those signposts, those markers that God has for you. Too often, what are we doing? We're praying, God, we need this to happen now. God, show me this now. God, do this now. Jesus, Jesus, come help. I'm out of, may not be wine, I'm out of something. Help me. And I don't know how we expect Jesus to respond to us, but I, I've never heard him tell me anything. But I have a feeling if, if he did, if I heard him in those moments where I'm being impatient, he would just say something along those same lines. My time has not yet come. The time isn't here yet. And I don't know where that's going to lead. But what I do know is that when I lean into him, even in those moments where I don't know the time and the hour, I don't know what he's up to. Even when I lean into those, I find a comfort because he is more than I need. And all I have to do is look around me to see that. 
sometimes it's hard, especially in the midst of our frustrations, to see that. But if we can step back and get a little better perspective, we understand that he's better than we expected and he's more than, than what we need. And it leads me to this, this observation that he's more than we could ever imagine. That's what he's showing us in this story. He's more than we could ever imagine. Let me just say this. Whatever you think about Jesus, you're underestimating him. Whatever you think, however great you think he is, you're underestimating him. Why do I say that? Because there's no possible way our human minds can wrap around who he truly is. We just can't do it. He's so much bigger and so much greater than than we could possibly fathom. And we see that in this story. And the great irony of this whole story is the setting and the imagery where it's happening. It's at a wedding. And two very minor characters at the tail end of the story are the master of the banquet and the bridegroom. What did I say earlier? Jesus is likely just sitting back here in the you know, far right section, halfway back, like any of us might do at a wedding. And the imagery of a wedding is that Jesus is the true master of the banquet and he's the true bridegroom. And we, the church, are his bride. And he's coming one day to collect us and to bring us back home. And when that happens, that will be the ultimate festival, the ultimate celebration. And we need to understand that's all stemming from his love. That's this whole story. This idea of transformation, this idea of change, it all stems from his love that he has for us. It's at a wedding. Weddings are all about love. Weddings are all about this idea of of this earthly representation of God's love for us. Weddings are a true celebration of love. That's what we do, right? We, We celebrate the love that two people have. We see water being transformed into something else that's symbolic of our lives being transferred. And we see two people who think they have a big role to play. And yet the person who is actually both of those roles is the one who took care of everything in the first place. That's what we see through this entire story. It is no accident to me that this story takes place at a wedding. Because it's not simply a cool backdrop or a cool setting. It's foreshadowing for what's to come. It's foreshadowing for what's to come for all of us in our walk with Jesus. Because that's the role we play. We are his bride and he is the groom. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's writing about husbands and wives. And men tend to love this passage because of how it starts. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's where most guys quit reading, let's be honest. Like, honey, did you see this verse right here? It's in the Bible. Because why do we read like three verses later? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and what? And gave himself up for her. That's a whole lot stronger of a command than submit to your husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy to cleanse her, to wash her, to prepare her, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle. That's the representation here. John, as as he's on the island of Patmos, uh, at the end of his life, reflecting back on all of this, probably in the midst of writing this gospel and writing these letters, he's visited by Jesus. 
And he writes all about it in a book we call Revelation. And Jesus gives him a glimpse of what's to come. He takes him and lets him see what the new heavens and the new earth will one day look like. And in chapter 19 of Revelation, he writes this, And I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the great uh, loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. For fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. These are the true words of God. It is no irony that when it comes to us with Jesus, us as people and Jesus as Lord, it starts with the wedding and it's one day going to end with the wedding. That representation of God's love for us that we get to share with each other, that we get to share with our spouse, that we get to celebrate together, those are the bookends. <laughs> Jesus announces for the first time who he is at a wedding and it will culminate with a wedding. That's what we see here. And if we said the wedding is the true celebration of love, what's that tell us? What are the ripple effects that come out of this sign? It's simple. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of celebration. If you ever think that walking with Jesus is boring or the church is boring, let me just tell you, it is not. The kingdom is a kingdom of celebration. But here's the catch. It's not a celebration like we're used to. Some of you might go uh, have, a, have a watch party for the Chiefs today, or you might celebrate if they win games, or especially if they get to the Super Bowl. We celebrate weddings. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate milestone moments with a get-together, food and, and drinks and, and laughs and good times for an hour, maybe two. And then we get on with our day. No, heaven will be a never-ending celebration with a level of joy that we can't even think about on this earth. That's what the kingdom will represent to us. It's a kingdom of transformation and celebration, but it all starts with Jesus. It starts with trusting him and believing in him and submitting to him, being baptized in him. That's where that celebration begins because that's where that transformation begins. So what's your takeaway today? It's simple. Trust Jesus to transform your life. If you're here and you have not given your life to Jesus, this is a good day to do that. You can catch me after service and we'll chat. Call me or email me in the next couple of days. I want to talk to you. Fill it out on your connection card. Drop it in one of the boxes as you leave. I'll call you tomorrow because I want to let you see why it's so good to trust in Jesus. Why he can transform your life. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Allow him to continue transforming your life for whatever comes next. Preparing you for whatever comes next. Because that, that's the true sign of walking with him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. So grateful for your son. And God, we're grateful that he came not just to save us, but to change us and to give us a new identity. We're not labeled by what this world calls us anymore, but we're called your children. God, I pray today that anybody who is struggling with that or anybody who is considering that, if they're here, hearing your name for the first time, or God, if they've heard your name every week for years and years, there's a transformation still to take place. 
I pray that we would humble ourselves before you and see that it's all about Jesus. And these signs that are laid out, each one's a great story, yes, but when we put them all together, it shows a great picture of who he is. That he is God. That he is Lord. That he is in control of all. God, I pray for us across the room, anybody watching online today, Lord, that you would speak this into our hearts and minds. Show us you. We pray this in your name. Amen.